Okay, thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, kind of the interplay between chronic pain and alcohol use. Uh, just briefly, for disclosures, just have some NIH funding related to opioid research. So we're going to be talking about the relationship between alcohol consumption and pain ranging from moderate to heavy drinking, and there's a little bit of a difference there. Describe some of that adverse effects of concomitant alcohol consumption and pharmacologic treatments for pain. And then uh, Dr. Prasad's going to take over and talk more about the behavioral management of co-occurring pain and alcohol use disorders. So in any given month, nearly half of Americans will consume some sort of alcoholic beverage. And uh, alcohol has a significant impact. Even up to 30% of the general population in the U.S. will meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder. And alcohol is just prevalent. It's very easy to get. Uh, and it results in many issues. Uh, and, and for healthcare expenditures, it can be upwards of $200 billion dollars. We see nearly 100,000 deaths related to alcohol use every year in the U.S. So I know the hot topic right now is opioids, but alcohol still remains a very important issue. So what is excessive alcohol use? So binge drinking, so anything in, a, in one sitting, which is typically two to three hours. The limits are going to be lower for women compared to men just because of the greater impact of the alcohol and the decreased metabolism. So for women, binge drinking would be four or more drinks in that two to three hour window. And for men, it would be five or more drinks in that two to three hour window. For pregnant women or anybody under 21, if they're consuming any amount of alcohol at any time, that would be considered excessive drinking. And what we see more commonly is heavy drinking. So in any given week, if a woman is consuming greater than seven alcoholic beverages, standard size, or for men greater than 14, that puts them in the category of heavy drinking. So it's very fitting we're in Las Vegas. There's really readily access to uh, alcohol, and those drinks can add up quite quickly. So what is considered a standard drink? That's usually uh, 14 and a half grams of alcohol in any shape or form. That's that standard 12 ounce of beer with a 5% alcohol blood volume. And this is not, you know, your craft beers, your IPAs, where you're going to have a higher percentage of alcohol. The five ounce glass of wine, that's again a 12% alcohol blood volume. Now I'm from California, so we see a whole range of alcohol blood volume, especially with our big, bold red cabaret and so we can see uh, alcohol blood volumes even as high as 16%. And then with a hard liquor that's a standard 80 proof, we see that the standard size of the drink is one and a half ounces. So next time you're at a party, uh, one thing I like to do is try to kind of measure out or eyeball these standard size drinks, and we see that it's a lot harder than we actually think. There was actually a myth. My research coordinator told me that the solo cup ridges are actually measurements, uh, easy measurements for the alcohol sizes, but I, I spent some time on the internet, and, and that's actually a myth. So don't use your solo cup as your measuring guide. It's actually, um, the company says it's for, for grip. So it's ideal for gripping the cup rather than doing any kind of measurements. So you might need to get out some kitchen tools. So how does excessive drinking affect us? As I already mentioned, very high cost of medical expenditures. We often see people at the severe end of alcohol use disorder presenting with end organ dysfunction issues. 
So binge drinking really is the main problem. When we think about it, a lot of us are, will see patients who are falling into that heavy drinking or binge drinking category, and then the number of people who are actually reaching the severest of alcohol use disorder is going to be much, much smaller. So one in six adults will engage in, in uh, binge drinking in any given month, and uh, this is often engaged uh, in more than four more times a month. And the average American, if they're engaging in binge drinking or drinking about eight drinks in that two to three hour window. So let's talk about that bi-directional relationship between alcohol consumption and pain. So this is kind of the theoretical model of how alcohol use can interact with pain. So initially, alcohol intoxication is rewarding. It will provide some degree of analgesia. But over time, when an individual is uh, engaging in chronic excessive alcohol use, what we see is in that process of alcohol dependence, and especially in those withdrawal states, that we are promoting hyperalgesia. There's also a concept called, and it's hard for me to say, hypercatophia, which is like this increased sensitivity to negative emotions, which also appears when a patient is drinking excessive amounts of alcohol over time. And this can, in turn, uh, worsen chronic pain conditions. So again, in that intoxication state, that's acutely rewarding. There's stimulation, there's analgesia, impairment. Uh, we see the uh, overbalance of the GABA compared to the glutamate. In the withdrawal stage, we see more of that CNS and autonomic nervous system hyperexcitability, especially with chronic drinkers. What is happening is that they have higher levels of glutamate to compensate for the uh, chronic alcohol intake and the rise in the GABA. When you take that GABA away with uh, alcohol withdrawal and abstinence, then they're in that hyperexcitable stage because they have more glutamate. There is resulting anxiety in the withdrawal phases, sleep disturbances, dysphoria, hyperalgesia. So in laboratory models, we've seen that there is increased pain tolerance with IV alcohol as well as oral alcohol ingestion. Uh, what's really interesting is that people have an increased analgesic response to intoxication if they have a family history of alcohol use disorder. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few slides. And acute ingestion does stimulate the release of endogenous opioids. So we see an interaction of alcohol with the endogenous opioid system, which is going to be relevant for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. So co-occurring alcohol use and pain. What do we see? So problem drinkers. Problem drinkers meaning anybody who has manifested a social or work com uh, consequence of their drinking or problems with their interpersonal relationships. They are more likely to report pain conditions and hyperalgesia. Uh, alcohol dependence is a very important risk factor for pain severity after injury. And this is particularly relevant because in the states of intoxication, individuals are at more risk for trauma traumatic events, and so the pain that can result after this trauma is harder to handle if an individual is in an alcohol-dependent state. Uh, the vulnerability to alcohol dependence is proportional to alcohol's pain alleviating effects. So how much an individual perceives that alcohol provides analgesia to them can actually be a cue to increase craving or, or drive an individual to drink. 
Uh, and, and about a quarter percent of patients with pain actually endorse heavy drinking. So I think we could all be doing a better job of implementing uh, screening brief uh, interventions and referrals to treatment in our pain practices or especially in the primary care setting. So what are the risk factors for problem drinking? So men are more likely to drink to cope with any kind of pain. Older adults are more likely to have drinking problems. Uh, we see common risk factors. So obesity is a risk factor for chronic low back pain as well as alcohol use disorder. And family histories of alcohol use disorders are particularly prevalent in patients with chronic pain. Another thing that overlaps is smoking. So we see that a lot of individuals who smoke have alcohol use disorder or have chronic pain. So all of these substance use assessments are, are very relevant, not just at an initial visit, but also over time. So tolerance. Tolerance to the analgesic effects do occur with repeated use. When we look at preclinical models of alcohol use, we see in rats that acutely that analgesic response peaks within two to four days, but then it comes back to more of a baseline after 10 days. So the experiences that sustain or exaggerate alcohol's analgesic effects more likely involved learned mechanisms. So an individual may not necessarily be getting analgesia over time, but that initial memory or that cue of, I feel like I've had analgesia before, is kind of a behavioral cue to keep drinking. In terms of the withdrawal, as I was saying, there's decreased GABA activity, there's upregulation in glutamate, upregulation in noradrenergic activity, and overall this heightened CNS activity state. And a lot of individuals will feel like they have anxiety symptoms and they'll be co-prescribed a benzodiazepine. So managing withdrawal symptoms with benzodiazepines and then engaging in heavy drinking over time. So let's talk a little bit about excessive drinking and alcohol dependence related to, to pain. So this induces pain and worsens chronic pain conditions. We see that withdrawal from chronic use acutely increases pain sensitivity and hyperalgesia. Some people can develop a small fiber peripheral neuropathy related to continued alcohol use. And uh, drinking in alcoholics may actually be motivated to, uh, by a, a desire to reduce that withdrawal-induced hyperalgesia or increased pain state. So here we see intersection in the brain of the pathways of nociception and alcohol dependence. So the areas highlighted in green are related to the anticipation or the preoccupation with substances. So in this case, in particular case, alcohol use. The blue areas kind of highlight the spinal thalamic tract, and what we see is that the pain, uh, the pain pathways actually feed into the anticipation and the preoccupation areas of the brain of addiction. So what does that mean? It means that an individual may be actually more queued up to consume alcohol in response to acute pain or chronic pain conditions. Uh, the other issue is that when an individual is drinking excessively over time, they have uh, dysregulation in their endogenous opioid system, which is going to uh, affect their pain modulation. So in, in that opposite way, excessive drinking can promote hyperalgesia and worsen pain conditions. So overall, what is happening is... Uh, an, an overbalance or an increase in allostatic load related to acute in intoxications and withdrawals over time, and that pushes a, 
a patient towards alcohol dependence, as well as a promotion of chronic pain disorders, as well as mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and depression. So alcohol-induced painful conditions, uh, we all know alcohol-induced pancreatitis. Alcohol is responsible for probably about 30% of the cases of acute pancreatitis and anywhere from a quarter to over 65% of cases of chronic pancreatitis, a very painful condition, very difficult to treat. Alcohol-related neuropathy, it can be sensory, motor, or autonomic. Um, we see excessive drinking is associated with the development of osteoarthritis. So a lot of times we're treating patients for, for maybe knee pain, uh, but that stems from excessive drinking itself. And as I talked about earlier, individuals uh, who drink excessively are at risk for increased traumatic injuries and persistent pain afterwards. So what about low to moderate alcohol consumption, having some drinks versus none? So in observational studies, what we see is any alcohol versus complete abstinence is associated with some reductions in risk of developing chronic widespread pain. And moderate alcohol consumption versus none is also associated with a 40 to 70% reduced likelihood of de uh, developing disabling back pain or neck pain or chronic widespread pain. So how is this possible? How is it possible that excessive drinking or alcohol use disorder can promote hyperalgesia and chronic pain conditions, but that low to moderate alcohol consumption could possibly be beneficial? Well, the thought is, the hypothesis is that with a little bit of disinhibition, maybe individuals who are prone to a fear avoidance behavior and worsening of their pain condition, they actually are more socially engaged. Maybe they increase their functioning. But again, that's a little bit of a hypothesis. And again, a caution with any type of observational study, when we categorize things as binary as any alcohol use versus none, we don't know where we are capturing individuals on the spectrum of alcohol use. So how does pain influence alcohol consumption? We see that patients with chronic pain uh, do report, uh, who report greater pain severity and unpleasantness uh, have uh, increased alcohol consumption. As I mentioned earlier, older adults with more severe pain and pain-related re interference are more likely to have drinking problems. Uh, persistent pain is related to uh, post-alcohol use disorder Treat, uh, consumption. So when a patient is going through um, the stages of alcohol use disorder treatment, especially acutely and being placed on maybe medications and getting behavioral therapy, though we also want to assess for pain. So this goes both ways. And so this is kind of the, the framework that I've presented to you with some of the data from the studies. So low to moderate alcohol consumption can actually be somewhat beneficial for individuals, but then when we cross over to excessive alcohol consumption and drinking, we see more of the problems and the persistence of pain. So alcohol and pain medications, we know for NSAIDs, there's an increased risk of GI bleeding. With concomitant acetaminophen use, we uh, see individuals at greater risk for liver toxicity. With opioids and benzodiazepines, the increased risk of sedation and respiratory depression. 
So with alcohol and prescription opioids, there's also overlap there. So more than a third of patients receiving prescription opioids also consume alcohol, which is obviously not what we would be recommending to our patients. And alcohol use disorder is much more prevalent among those who use prescription opioids. So if we have a patient who comes into our office already taking prescription opioids, it's still important to have that conversation or at least open the door and see what the patient self-reports in terms of their alcohol use. Even just a brief intervention, just the assessment and intervention of, of, uh, of telling an individual where they fall in terms of the consumption of their alcohol can change behavior. So the DSM-5 criteria for alcohol use disorders, this is similar across the board for all substance use disorders, opioid use disorders. The main thing was the removal of those legal implications and the addition of craving into the criteria. So this is for full-blown alcohol use disorder. So I just wanted to mention some screening tools that can be very effective. The CAGE questionnaire, two or more positive responses, are strongly associated with alcohol dependence, so we'd want to delve deeper. So this is related to whether individuals have tried to cut down on their drinking, annoyed by individuals talking about their alcohol consumption, feeling guilty about their drinking, or having an eye-opener. Another one that I like is the Audit C, the Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test Concise. So this is scored, each response is scored from zero to four points. Um, a lot of individuals will score positive on this Audit C based on question number one, uh, and they'll score uh, zero on two or three. So obviously, if, if we have an, a positive score, which is four or more for males, three or more for women, we want to delve a little bit deeper into kind of how habitual the alcohol use is. In terms of FDA-approved medications, here we see the overlap with treatment for opioid use disorder. So naltrexone or naltrexone IM. The reason we like to use this medication for uh, alcohol use disorder treatment is that you can start at any time. So even when an individual is not completely abstinent in those acute stages, you can start the naltrexone. And what it does is it, it decreases uh, the craving for the alcohol. It decreases the number of drinks if an individual were actually to relapse that they would want to have. In terms of uh, a campersate, this was originally improved in Europe and in larger clinical trials has had some mixed results where we see the best effects is if someone has been abstinent for quite some time and then are placed on a campersate. A campersate kind of helps to balance the glutamate GABA levels so that individuals are less likely to experience the severe withdrawal symptoms, the severe hyperalgesia. And then disulfiram, which is less preferred, uh, allows for acetaldehyde buildup in the body and the flushing and so the negative reactions associated with alcohol use. So oral naltrexone, so this is administered as 50 milligrams per day, and this is a mu delta and kappa opioid receptor antagonist. So if an individual is uh, on opioids co-prescribed, this is going to make treatment with oral naltrexone a little tricky, and so you may want to choose a camprosate instead. If you have an individual who already has liver disease, which could be quite common with alcohol use disorder, then you may want to think about switching over to a camprosate uh, just because of the risk of elevated LFTs. On the other hand, if you have somebody who is, uh, has renal insufficiency, then you'd want to put them on a um, on naltrexone instead of a camprosate. 
So a little bit about, um, you know, what kind of substances or what kind of medications can we give to patients uh, to treat both pain as well as alcohol use disorder. A lot of people who have been in remission for quite some time uh, with alcohol use disorder are hesitant to take pain medications. They don't want to get hooked on other medications, which is a very valid concern. But one medication that we can offer would be gabapentin. So this seems to normalize the alcohol-induced effects on GABA and glutamate, so it could be useful for an individual who has an alcohol use disorder history where you want to treat their pain. There's no hepatic metabolism, and it's more effective than uh, Ativan in reducing drinking after detoxification. We definitely don't want to recommend the use or the transition to benzodiazepines or antidepressants as first-line treatment for alcohol use disorder. We're kind of trading one thing for another, especially if we're putting a patient on benzodiazepines to, to become abstinent from alcohol. So what is the effect of pain on alcohol use disorder treatment? So reductions in physical pain during alcohol use treatment predicted a lower risk of relapse. So I see a real opportunity here. If you have an individual who has made it to, to treatment for their alcohol use disorder, and if they have a co-occurring pain condition, we can play a very pivotal role in helping to not only manage their pain, but also potentially reduce the risk of the relapse. And pain interference and pain intensity at the end of alcohol use disorder treatment predicts whether someone will have heavy drinking or the time to the first heavy drinking event. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Prasad. He's going to talk a little bit more about the behavioral management of co-occurring AUD and pain. All righty. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hobb. So uh, to start off with just a couple of uh, uh, disclosures, I'm advisory board member, consultant, uh, shareholder with these companies. Uh, the learning objectives for my portion of the presentation today, uh, one to help you guys identify and articulate the role of environment and genetics in the development of alcohol use disorders. Also want to discuss the role of cognitive behavioral treatment to address alcohol use disorders. So I always like to start off from a 30,000 foot perspective, give you a little bit more of a scope of what we're dealing with. So it's estimated that alcohol use disorder affects approximately 15.1 million U.S. adults and 623,000 adolescents. Uh, approximately 5.9% of global deaths are attributed to alcohol consumption. And alcohol in the U.S., uh, excuse me, alcohol misuse in the U.S. was estimated to have a cost of approximately a quarter of a trillion dollars, um, and 75% of that cost was related to binge drinking. So certainly alcoholism, alcohol use disorder is an issue that needs to be reckoned with. But what causes alcohol use disorder? Is it a genetic issue or is it something that's related to our environment? Well, let's explore these things in a little bit more detail. We'll start by talking about genetics. So we know that a lot of the things that we've learned about alcohol use disorder and about heritability has come from adoption studies. Uh, these have allowed us to get a better sense of what role environment versus genetics play in the onset of a particular condition. So just to illustrate what I mean by that, let's say that you have a person who's born uh, to two parents who are both alcoholics. Uh, that person's raised in an environment where they witness a significant amount of drinking on the part of both parents, and over the course of time, that individual develops alcohol use disorder themselves, right? It's difficult to try to parse out, was it the environment that they were raised in, or was it the genetic predisposition that led to them developing alcohol use disorder? Well, let's say that same individual who was born to two parents that have alcoholism uh, was put up for adoption at birth. 
They get raised in an environment where there's no alcoholism, no substance use in the environment at all. They're raised in an environment where there's no other adverse childhood experiences, no physical, sexual, emotional abuse in the environment. It's a relatively clean and stable upbringing. But over the course of time, that person develops an alcohol use disorder. Well, when we compile large numbers of people that have that type of a similar situation, then we start to look and see what contribution biological factors have. Because at that point, we know it's not the social context, per se, that's contributed to the development of the disorder, but rather the genetic predisposition. And so adoption studies, twin studies, have allowed us to, again, gain a larger perspective as to the role that environment versus genetics play in the development of not just alcohol use disorders, but other inheritable conditions. So what we've learned over the decades of research is that there's no single gene for addiction. There's no single gene for alcoholism. But what we do know is that approximately 50% of uh, alcohol use disorder has been attributed to heritable conditions. But it's not all bad news. We also know that genetics can play a protective role in the experience of uh, alcohol use disorder. Uh, there does exist a genetic metabolic disorder uh, where there's a particular enzyme that's less active or inactive and when people consume alcohol, because of this inactivity or less activity of this enzyme, people experience facial flushing, they have nausea, uh, tachycardia, they have headache, and so just a lot of really unpleasant experiences after they consume alcohol. And so this serves a protective function because when people associate this with alcohol use, they tend not to drink as much. And so this particular genetic metabolic disorder is most prevalent in Asian ethnic groups. But then we'll move on now to the environment. One of the ways that environment plays a significant role in the onset of alcohol use disorders involves the way that we learn from our environment. And there are several different theories of learning that I'm going to talk about today that I believe relate to uh, the onset of alcohol use disorder, which are classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and social learning. And I want to spend a little bit of time explaining what these learning theories are, how they operate, so you have a better appreciation for how these things can contribute to the onset of alcohol use disorder. And again, even though this talk is about alcohol use, I think that you can take this information that we're talking about in terms of learning and apply it to other substance use disorders as well, or just understanding how our experiences early on in life start to shape uh, how we respond to stimuli and stressors later on in life. But first, we'll talk about classical conditioning. So classical conditioning or associative learning is where an association gets developed between two uh, stimulus and response that are not naturally associated with one another. And so I'll give you guys a, a very personal example of classical conditioning. So many years ago, I was uh, with a friend going out to dinner in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we decided to go out for Mexican food. We went to what was supposed to be a nice Mexican restaurant in Salt Lake City. So the first mistake I made was thinking that you could get nice Mexican food in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, <laughs> but beyond that mistake, I, we went to dinner, and I experienced horrific food poisoning after that event, right? It was probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life. Uh, but clearly, I survived it, given that I'm standing up here with you today. Um, but anyway, so fast forward a couple of weeks after that experience of food poisoning at this Mexican restaurant. I'm with the same friend, and we're driving around looking for a place to grab a bite to eat for lunch. I have the top down in the car, and we drive past another Mexican restaurant. So that's a shocker. Yes, Salt Lake City has more than one Mexican restaurant. But so we're driving past another one, and just the smell of Mexican food made me start to feel very queasy. My stomach started to get upset. I almost started dry heaving. And that's really embarrassing to be an adult, like dry heaving in your car with the, with the front next to you. But it was because of that association I had made. I had associated the smell of Mexican food with that horrific food poisoning experience that I had. 
So this is an example of associative learning. But we see associative learning occurring as well with alcoholism or alcohol use disorder. We can see how this might evolve. You know, if a person starts to associate uh, certain social situations, going to certain bars, going to certain clubs um, with alcohol, then there's a link that starts to get formed where anytime they see the sights, sounds, or smells, they're gonna start, they can start to crave alcohol or feel that they need to have alcohol with them. And this is part of that classical conditioning or associative learning that might start to take place over the course of time. Another form of learning is operant conditioning. Um, and this was first posited by B.F. Skinner. And this is where there's a system of rewards or a system of punishment that can either reinforce a behavior, which increases the frequency or likelihood of a behavior occurring, or it can help extinguish a behavior, minimize the likelihood that that behavior occurs. And we can see simple examples of this all over us. You know, if you have a, a dog and you're training your dog to do a particular trick, training your dog to shake hands, every time your dog puts, puts her paw out and shakes your hand, you give her a treat. Right? That's an example of reward or reinforcement. You're trying to reinforce the behavior, uh, and so you give her that reward. An example of punishment being used to extinguish behavior will be an example of a child who doesn't follow curfew. Right? They come in a couple hours late, so the parent says, you know what, you're grounded for a month. You're not going to be allowed to go out and spend time with your friends for one month. So something was taken away from that child, the ability to go out and socialize with their friends, and so once their grounding period is over, they go out with their friends, they're going to be very mindful of what time it is because that punishment served to extinguish the behavior of uh, coming home late after curfew. So in the case of alcohol use disorder, we can again see where some of this type of learning can influence the onset of the disorder. Um, alcohol can have rewarding effects initially. You know, if a person is experiencing a high level of stress and they drink some alcohol and they find that it helps to quiet some of that affective distress that they're experiencing initially. Or somebody finds that they have a lot of social anxiety and they have a few alcoholic beverages and it helps to, to quiet some of that anxiety. They get disinhibited and they feel they can interact with people more. That starts to become reinforcing effects of alcohol. That's the reward aspects. But what's interesting is even if a person has uh, strong punishment, such as having a hangover or having a really bad adverse reaction. They drink too much. Uh, they have a night where they're, they're worshiping the porcelain god, right? Even though that can be a very powerful effect, we see that in, in, whenever you see somebody have that, they say, I'm never drinking again, right? But nine times out of 10, what you often find is either the next weekend or sometime later that month, they're drinking again. And part of that is because the reinforcements are so much more powerful than that punishment. And so if we're really wanting to extinguish a particular behavior, extinguish maladaptive behaviors, we have to do more than just have something like a punishment. And we'll talk about what that more might look like. And then the last type of learning I'll talk about is social learning. And this is observational learning. Um, this is where we learn just through the pattern of observation. And we see this with children quite frequently, where children mimic the behaviors of their parents. Right? You might have a, a child who witnesses a parent who gets very angry at a football game and they, they get up and they storm out the room and they hit the countertop as they storm out the room. Well, later on, that child is upset because something happened uh, to their Legos. And so they get up, they storm out the room and they slam the countertop just like they saw their parent do. Well, that's observational learning. They're mimicking what they see uh, people around them do. Again, we can see the application of this learning with the advent of alcohol use disorder. If a child is raised in an environment where they witness that the way that their parents deal with stress is by drinking, or they witness that this is how their friends 
other people in their lives deal with stress or deal with difficult situations, then they start to learn that this may be a way to deal with stress, and they may start to engage in alcohol use themselves. So what you can start to see is that these different types of learning, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? We can see how a person might have all of these aspects of learning in a single situation. So a person may have been raised in an environment where they've observed parents who use alcohol as a means of coping, and so they engage in that same type of uh, means of coping by drinking alcohol. It gets reinforced by the fact that they feel that they're able to escape, so there's that reward, so operant conditioning, and then they start to associate alcohol with being a stress reduction, right? So now we've seen a combination of social learning, operant conditioning, and classical conditioning all together. So the learning has occurred at multiple levels in multiple ways, and so it can become that much more resistant to change. So what we know about alcohol use disorder is it's not necessarily just genetics, it's not necessarily just context, but it's a combination of both of these things. It's a combination of nature and nurture that can lead to the onset of alcohol use disorder. So Dr. Ha went over some of the pharmacologic treatments that we have for alcohol use disorder, the naltrexone, campersate, and disulfiram. I'm going to talk to you more about some of the psychological treatment, and specifically I'm going to focus on cognitive behavioral approaches to treating alcohol use disorder. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, what we do is we try to help patients identify what are some of the specific triggers that can eventually lead to the alcohol use behavior. And oftentimes we see that these triggers are psychosocial in nature, Physical pain itself can be a strong trigger for alcohol use. But then beyond just identifying the triggers, we need to help patients do something about those. So we specifically target the thought processes that mediate their exposure to that trigger and their response, which is their alcohol use. So looking at this in a model, we can look at cognitive behavioral work as occurring in a linear fashion. There's some sort of situation or event that we experience we have some interpretation of that situation or event that directly leads to our physical, emotional, and behavioral consequences, right? So looking at this specifically in the case of pain, let's say that somebody experiences a significant flare in their pain condition, right? If they think to themselves, you know what? I can't take this pain. There's, there's nothing I can do about this. I need to try to escape this. Well, those are their thought processes. Consequently, it makes sense that somebody might feel some degree of sadness. They may feel some anxiety. Uh, some anger. Those might be the emotions that somebody experiences. Um, in terms of activity, they may start to pull away from activity. They may isolate from others. Um, they may become more irritable and snap at folks. But then all of this stress is going to create a high level of sympathetic nervous system reactivity. And some of that sympathetic reactivity can turn around and worsen that physical pain. And so you start a vicious cycle where the pain just continues to feed off itself. But it's not feeding off itself because of the emotions per se but rather the thought processes are what's mediating this. So then, a person drinks some alcohol, right? A person drinks some alcohol. And initially, that breaks the cycle, right? Because initially, we find that alcohol is a CNS depressant. It can stop a lot of that nervous system activation, break the cycle, they feel a little bit better. And so it's reinforcing, as Dr. Hod mentioned earlier on in her presentation. And so a person might start to learn that, hey, you know what, alcohol can become a useful tool in managing my pain. It can help me feel a little bit more relaxed. I don't feel the pain as much. But we know that chronically, over the course of time, this isn't a long-term solution. And over the course of time, it's actually going to feed back in to that cycle, and it's going to make the situation worse. Right? So it's not an adaptive solution, but instead we need to try to teach people ways to break it. And in these situations, we can't necessarily change the situation. 
right? We can't always control the situations that we find ourselves in. Certainly there may be some situations that we can help patients uh, avoid, but a lot of times we can't control those situations. So helping them learn ways of adapting to those things, changing the way that they're interpreting those things, is the crux of cognitive behavioral theory, which I find to be a very empowering aspect of the model because of the fact that it puts the power back with the patient rather than something that's not in their control. And so we can see how the same thing might apply in other types of conflicts, conflict with the spouse, right? A person has conflict with the spouse, they have thought processes about that conflict, which directly influences their emotions, their behaviors, they're all call use, and over the course of time, that just starts to create more problems, but it becomes a cyclical thing, where I drink alcohol to escape my problems, but then the alcohol use makes my problems worse. But it's that immediate gratification, that immediate release that people are oftentimes looking for. They're not looking at that larger picture of how it contributes to worsening the situation. So in cognitive behavioral theory or therapies, we target these thought processes, and we try to help patients develop healthier ways of interpreting their situations to develop healthier outcomes. If we only focus on the outcomes, we're not going to get too terribly far, right? If we try to tell a person, hey, just stop drinking, well, if it were that easy, they would have already done that, right? We can't teach a person to just turn their emotions off, right? But if you think that's possible, next time you see somebody who's really upset, try telling them, hey, stop being angry and see how effective that is, right? We, we can't turn our emotions off, but it's especially difficult if we know what the thought processes are that are driving it. But what makes this challenging is that our thought processes evolved over the course of time. Our thoughts are learned responses. And so these, are, these have been with us since the start of our lives. They've evolved through the experiences we've had, the childhood experiences, the influences that we have from parents, teachers, friends. All of these things start to shape our thought processes. And so these become extremely challenging to change. But we know that we can change these. Um, they're not impossible. And using cognitive behavioral therapies to address um, substance use disorders has demonstrated efficacy over the course of time. Uh, Meta-analytic review found overall effect size in the moderate range for CBT in treating substance use disorder. But most importantly, what we found is that CBT for alcohol use disorder, uh, the treatment effects are durable over the course of time, meaning that they continue to persist uh, uh, over the course of time long after the therapy is complete. And so oftentimes in, in, uh, excuse me, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy, and they refer to it as quit your stinking thinking. That's the, the way that they refer to it in AA. But it's really, they appreciate and uh, understand the role that the thought processes have, that it's not just the triggers, right, but it's how we're interpreting it. Because there's some triggers that you just can't avoid. It might be easy to tell an alcoholic or a person with alcohol use disorder just don't go to the bars, avoid these different triggers. But there's some things that, again, you can't avoid. So what are some of the factors to consider? So when working with this population, uh, you want to make sure that you employ a biopsychosocial approach to conceptualizing the problem, but also to treatment. So when working with somebody, recognize it's not just the biological factors, but psychological factors, social factors will influence the onset of not just their pain condition, but the alcohol use disorder as well. And so given that, you want to make sure that you appreciate those factors as you create a treatment plan. And that leads directly to looking at the family systems, and not just the family, but the social system in which the person is living. We find that the social environmental system can actually help improve recovery, but it can also serve as an obstacle to recovery. And so you want to try to assess how much of a role is the, is the family or the social context playing 
in a person's recovery. Is it a hindrance? Is it a, a benefit? And you want to try to incorporate the family system whenever possible. But also recognizing that as a person with an alcohol use disorder starts to make a change in themselves, it's going to affect the whole system around them. And so preparing the system for those types of changes so that it can adapt uh, together in a positive manner. Um, need to focus on relapse prevention, right? And recognize that relapse is oftentimes a part of the recovery process itself. Um, and so recognizing that and validating that for patients that when they do have a relapse, um, that they're not a horrible human being, but that it's a natural part of what can happen as people go through the recovery process. But what's important isn't perseverating on the fact that somebody has relapsed, but rather minimizing the amount of time that they spend in that relapse and minimizing the negative implications that come from that relapse. And then after that occurs, looking to see what can be done to prevent a future relapse from happening. What triggered that relapse and how can we try to address that? We also have to recognize, and Dr. Ha alluded to this in her talk, pain can be both a trigger that influences use of alcohol, but it can also be a consequence of chronic alcohol use. So pain is a trigger. You know, pain, again, is one of those things that can be the stimulus that leads to a pathway where somebody engages in high level of alcohol use. But over the course of time, as they continue to use that alcohol, it can start to become part of the problem, and so it can be a consequence of the chronic alcohol use. So we need to recognize that it can be both of those. And so with that, we need to make sure that as we're treating alcohol use disorder, that we also are treating the underlying pain condition that a person has. And what we may find as we optimally treat the pain, we may find that that has a positive impact on the overall alcohol use disorder as well. And lastly, it's important to recognize that this is a dynamic process. Recovery is an ongoing process. You don't hear people say, I'm recovered from alcohol use disorder, but you hear people refer to themselves as being in recovery. And this is giving a nod to the fact that it is an ongoing process and not a status that you achieve, but something that's dynamic in nature. Okay. So with that, we wanted to make sure that we left a couple of minutes for some questions from the audience. And so we've got about five, five six minutes for questions. So we'll go ahead and open it up to you guys for that. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question. I think it's based on physiology. So, you know, I guess if you got to use like more of your sex rather than gender as the guide, I would assume for the basis for those calculations. Yeah. Go ahead. Have the ability to 
Yeah, yeah. That's, so clarification, if you have like that acute withdrawal state and somebody is kind of on the spectrum where you're worried about delirium tremens, you may need that kind of acute use of benzodiazepines. But I would set kind of um, an expectation of, you know, we're, we're doing this acutely to avoid the medical consequence, but it's not going to be kind of the habitual thing. Benzodiazepine use in and of itself is, as a sole uh, use disorder is very rare. It's usually co-occurring very often co-occurring with alcohol use disorder. So, uh, yeah, just not setting up the expectation of long-term use. What would you consider Yeah, I think it would just be, it depends on how severe the alcohol use has been. You know, you may even want to consider if someone needs to be in the ICU monitored, maybe get dexmedetomidine on top of it. Uh, but I, I think it, it's, it's a case-by-case basis, so it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, and then transition. Transition to, like I said, I love to use naltrexone if there's no contraindication because you can start that any time, even as they are as they're coming off of their alcohol use. Yeah, so it's going to be, um, that's where you see the, the tolerance effect. So you can see people who you know, get cited for traffic citations, drinking under the influence, and if they're chronic excessive drinkers, their alcohol blood volume's off the roof. But if it were just a regular person, they'd be in the ICU with an alcohol poisoning event. So um, it it's, depends, again, person to person. And it, just think about that seesaw of glutamate and GABA. So if you're just constantly intoxicating and withdrawing, that you're having more and more and more glutamate upbuild in your system because it's used to being depressed by the ga- uh, GABA and the alcohol. So you're, you're just on a spectrum. It's going to be different for everybody. It's, it makes it difficult, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I recall uh, that observation study that of mild bars in the alcohol supposed to be good for pain. And that's exactly one of my chronic pain patients told me that a cardiologist said, well, you can think, uh, drink uh, alcohol, but probably that our company, our clinic, our OPRD when they say you cannot control Yeah, I think that you would, you know, put them in a higher risk category just just in and of itself the fact that you use opioids that means that you're more likely to to want to engage in more alcohol use probably because there is again that dysregulation in the endogenous opioid system. So just saying that they have a higher risk factor for progressing to alcohol use disorder rather than just staying at the the low to moderate levels of alcohol use. So um, I would continue to screen over time. I would um, say, you know, if that's your clinic policy, then hopefully they will be able to to kind of fit within that boundaries. Because I agree, you know, if it's in your best medical judgment that mixing these medications is, is not good for patients. And we tell them the same thing, you know, you shouldn't consume your gabapentin with alcohol, your opioids with alcohol, what, but whatever happens, happens, right? Um, but we want to, to try to get individuals and assess the, the 
the use over time and see if it's going in one direction or another. Knowing all of the risk factors, your patient's at elevated risk of, of, of having the, the drinking progress to more of the heavy, the binge drinking and alcohol use disorders. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if that data exists. I'd have to look through the literature. I'm not aware. Would it be, could we consider like a glass of wine a day would be safe? Uh, I guess it would depend on what type of alcohol, you know, if it was one of the older formulations of extended release hydromorphone that you could just, people would put their pill in there and the alcohol with the whiskey and it will become immediate release and drink the whole thing. Probably not a good idea. Yeah, those are off the market, but there, there's all sorts of ways of, of mixing opioids and alcohol in unhealthy fashion. So I feel like as healthcare providers, I mean, we still have to give them the bottom line, you know. And, and maybe opioids are not the best option. If someone is has those cues and the cravings for the alcohol, it sounds like they should be getting naltrexone anyway, or, you know, if they're on the AD spectrum. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, if we just look at the alcohol use uh, in and of itself, it's not problematic drinking. Yeah. Right. Thank you guys very Thanks. much.